New Life Church, Bronson Duke here. Thank you for listening in. We are partway through our Book of Acts series. We are studying the nature of the early church and what does it mean for us. We, we hope that this message equips you, it blesses you, and it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Y'all doing well? Okay. Well, hey, we're continuing in our series in Acts. Uh, if you're new to our church, we're like 10 weeks into a series. Uh, the good news, you can catch up if you want. Uh, it's online. There's a podcast and all those sorts of things. Uh, you don't have to do that. They'll stand alone, but you can if you want to jump in and dive deeper. And so this week we're in chapter 17. If you want to go ahead and thumb in your Bibles to it. If you, if you need a Bible, if you want a Bible, uh, just r- raise your hand real quick. Hold it up. And we've got a few. Somebody will help bring you one. Uh, we got a few hands up. If you guys could help them uh, distribute them fits, if you could help get those to people. Um, I, I want to give you this, um, and then I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. Uh, the message of the book of Acts, we hit this each week, is that God has filled his people. Who are his people? It's the church, right? With his Holy Spirit, and he sent us out as ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents, absolutely. He sent us to every corner of the earth to spread his message of his kingdom for the redemption and the renewal of a world that he so desperately loves. Y'all, the message of the Bible is that God loves the world and that God wants to redeem the world for his purposes. And what that really means is he wants to help us as human beings become all that we were intended to be. Amen? Uh, I want to read uh, from one of the most famous, impactful speeches in the history of our great country. This is from Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which he delivered at the Lincoln Memorial in August 28th of 1963. And what he does here is he paints an image of human flourishing. Here's what he says. I'm going to throw it up on the screens. Dr. King said this. He said, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice and sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Now, what I want you to see is that Dr. King in this speech, what he did so brilliantly is he affirmed the culture, right? He, he, he called the culture in his critique to live up to something that was supposed to be in place, right? Which is the freedom and the equality of all men. Through this, then he paints a picture of what it can look like if we do this. So th- this is a paradigm for emulation, what Dr. King did. And we're living in the blessing of his faith today, amen? Look around the room. We have people from all different backgrounds coming together in worship, eating at each other's tables, Y'all, there's parts of this. I've never said this before. I hope it's okay. My family, if you go back 200 years, owned slaves. Fitz Hill, back in the back, his family was owned by slaves. And now we get to sit at the table of brotherhood. If that's not the picture of gospel grace, I don't know what else is. This is what God does. This is what God is doing. 
What we're gonna see in Acts chapter 17 is Paul doing exactly what Dr. King did. He affirms the culture, he critiques the culture, and he paints a picture of what the world can look like if we do things God's way, amen? I I wanna give you a thesis real quick. We're each called and equipped to share the gospel of grace in the midst of a world that distresses and grieves us. Has anybody felt distressed and grieved by the world? Anybody? Show of hands. God has called us and he's equipped us to share the gospel of grace in the midst of a world that distresses and grieves us. Okay, recommended resources, right? Uh, This week, I wanna recommend a book. It's like this thick. It's by a guy named John Tyson. It's called uh, A Creative Minority, Influencing Culture Through Redemptive Participation. I love that. Influencing Culture Through Redemptive Participation. Um, My sermon title this morning is The Unknown God. Knowing the unknown God, if I were going to expand it. And so go, Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. Camille up here is going to read it. And let's do this. Let's stand to our feet in reverence for the reading of God's word. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, remar- he marked out their appropriate times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would, they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead." When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, Dionysius, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. 
word of the Lord. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you speak to us through it. God, we believe that you're the creator of heaven and earth. God, that you spoke and all things came into being. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to redeem us and you sent the Holy Spirit to lead us and to reorder our steps. God, help us learn how to share this morning. God, help us learn how to evangelize, to share your gospel effectively and help us live it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, come on, all God's people said, amen, amen. Okay, Uh, have you ever encountered or heard something that greatly distressed you? Have you ever heard something or encountered something, maybe a belief system somebody had that distressed you? Has anybody run into that before? Maybe this past couple years, right? Uh, Maybe 13 years ago, I was working as a maintenance guy, and uh, one of the guys who did the landscaping where I worked, uh, it was about 110 degrees. He was doing all the the grass mowing and the edging and all this stuff. It was hot. It was like hot, like the heat of Arkansas summer hot. You all know what I'm talking about like 98 degrees at nine o'clock at night, hot. Okay, so it was the middle of one of those days. This guy's out there, and y'all, this guy looked like a professional wrestler. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine your hair, like bleached blonde mullet flowing. He had a NASCAR t-shirt on. He had like tanned, leathered skin, you know? He had no muscles, all right? He had all the look of a professional wrestler, but not the muscles of a professional wrestler, okay? And so this guy comes inside, and I'm telling y'all, again, it's Arkansas. You, you walk outside for like one minute in Arkansas summer and you're sweating, right? This guy is bone dry, okay? Like bone dry. And I'm like, do you need some water, you know? Uh, and he goes, oh, he goes, he, this distressed me. He goes, they say water's good for you, but it ain't no good for me. I became more concerned. And I said, man, we need to get you some water. And he goes, no, I don't, I don't need any water. He goes, I got my sweet tea right here. I said, what do you drink? He said, sweet tea and Mountain Dew is all I drink. And y'all, I'm convinced that this guy is dead. Okay, like, I I don't know how much further past that he lived, but one thing I know is that the human body needs water, H2O, to survive. I don't know how he made it as far as he did. I was distressed. I'm still distressed. Okay, it still bothers me. This guy wasn't drinking water. Uh, Last year at our staff Christmas party, Dwayne Clayton comes up to me and sits down by me, and I said, man, I'm a little dehydrated. He goes, Pastor, he goes, you don't drink water? I said, I mean, I drink water. I mean, I just get dehydrated sometimes. He got pastor. He goes, you got to drink more water. <laughs> and he, he was talking to me like I was like in adultery. Like he'd found out I was living in this deep, dark sin because I wasn't drinking enough water. Dwayne was distressed, right? Oftentimes, we observe things in our friends and neighbors and our culture at large that deeply distress us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we engage both effectively and biblically with worldviews and activities and things like this that bother us and distress us? This is what we're going to learn from Paul this morning. And what we're going to talk about, guys, is we're going to talk about something called evangelism this morning. It's how you share your faith. But what I'm hoping you get out of this and what I'm hoping this helps you with is how do you share your faith in a world that's opposed to it? How do you share, a faith, share your faith in a world that's not open to it? 40 years ago, everybody pretty much knew they needed to go to church, right? We're now living in what most people would say is a post-Christian world. 
We're, we're moving past the time where the majority of the country is Christian, and we're moving into a time where we are a minority within our country. So how do we engage effectively and biblically with this world? This is where we find Paul. Look what it says, Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly, what? Distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Okay, let's enter in. Let's, let's dig in here. Yo, this is a moment of like epic proportions, okay? The great apostle, the apostle Paul, was walking in the midst of the glory of ancient Greece in Athens, okay? So Paul would have been very familiar with Athens. He would have known about it from his boyhood. Everyone knew about Athens. It was the intellectual metropolis of Rome. From Athens came the philosophy that shaped the empire, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all these people taught in Athens. He could have been tempted to simply do Athens, right? Like, I'm going to do New York. I'm going to do Athens, right? Get me an espresso, go see the Parthenon, linger in the Agora, see the paintings and listen to the, the debate, see the sights of the Acropolis, right? It was a sight to behold. He could have done that, but he didn't. John Stott said this. It says, first and foremost, what he saw was neither the beauty nor the brilliance of the city, but he saw its idolatry. That's what stuck out to him. He saw past the facade of all the beauty and the glory, and he saw what was underneath it. This place was full of idols. It was lousy with idols. It's one of my favorite adjectives, and I'm so glad I got to throw it in. It's lousy with idols, full of idols. Here's what I want you to see. Here's the issue with idolatry. It was robbing God, and it was robbing them, okay? It was robbing God, and it was robbing them. Let's unpack this. Paul was distressed. You know, this is the same word used to describe how God felt about the Israelites who built the golden calf. When he was seeing this, it, it says that God was jealous. God was distressed. I, I've always struggled with the idea of God being jealous. Anybody want to be honest and say, like, that's bothered you a little bit, right? John Stott breaks it down like this, and I think it is so helpful. He says this. He says, now jealousy is the resentment of rivals. Now, whether it's good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business being there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty in brains or sports is sinful because we cannot claim a monopoly of talent in those areas, right? We have no right to claim that. If, on the other hand, a third party enters our marriages, the jealousy of the injured person who's being displaced is righteous because the intruder has no right to be there. It's the same with God who says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield glory to another or my praise to idols. Our creator and redeemer has the right to our exclusive allegiance and is jealous if we transfer it to anything else. Moreover, the people of God who love God's name should share in the jealousy for it. Why? Why are we jealous? Because where Christ is most glorified, humans are most fulfilled. Where God is given glory, humans find grace and fulfillment and purpose. Okay, guys, we could have one of three reasons for evangelism, right? It could be duty or obedience, right? Because Christ said in the Great Commission, go forth and make disciples of all nations. It could be like, okay, I have to evangelize, therefore I'm going to. All right, that works, but it's not the best motivation, right? 
Second, which would be better, would be compassion. I want to evangelize because I see that people are hurting. I love them, so I want to share. I want to evangelize. I want to share God's goodness. That's great. But what's better is when we do it because we have jealousy for the glory of Christ. What does that mean? We're jealous. We don't want anything else getting glory that's due to Christ. Now, if we live like that, we'll obey. We'll be moved to compassion and love because we see when Christ is glorified, people are fulfilled. Does that make sense? So the jealousy and what drives us is we want Christ to get what's his so people can walk in what they're intended to walk in because where Christ is followed, humans flourish. Where Christ is worshiped, humans are fulfilled. Yo, this is why it's okay for us to be distressed by idolatry in our culture. I just want you to think for a second, what are the idols of our culture? Self, what did you say? Jobs, yeah. It could be finances, it could be things. Clothes, cars, yeah, entertainment. There's so many things. We don't necessarily be like, okay, I'm gonna build a golden plump pig and I'm gonna worship said plump pig, right? We've progressed a bit, right? As humanity, we've progressed a bit. Our idolatry has gotten more complicated. It hasn't gotten any less evil, all right? Does that make sense? Our idolatry has gotten more complicated. It hasn't gotten any less evil. Here's what I want you to notice, though. Paul is not personally offended. Do you notice that? He's not angered for himself. He's distressed because God's being robbed of glory and people are being robbed of grace. But what I've felt in myself this past couple years as we've gone through all the cultural change is I get frustrated, right? Often I can get angry, I can get offended. But you know, what happens when we do that, when we get offended like that, is I believe we lose our effectiveness. What does Paul do? He mo- he's moved, he's distressed, to intentional, strategic evangelism. He enters into graceful and thoughtful gospel presentation. Okay, let's look at how he did it. Number one, he affirms the good in his culture. He affirms the good in his culture. I love this. It says, and the the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I think I would have loved Athens, right? Drink your coffee, listen to ideas, have a debate. It sounds wonderful, okay? Okay. Paul then stood up and said, people of Athens, I can see that in every way you were very religious. He doesn't mean this in a negative way. He means this in a good way. Like, I can see that you eagerly desire truth. Anytime we want to share the gospel, it's always helpful to start with affirmation, right? How many relationships do you have that started with criticism, right? Not many. Nobody wants to be friends with that guy, okay? So what does Paul do? He finds something good, and he affirms it. Um, this can be difficult to do, and it takes intentionality. Why? It's, it's difficult to affirm when someone's attacking, right? It's difficult to affirm when someone's attacking. So a few years ago, uh, we, we had set up some tents outside uh, during food, food truck festival time, and uh, we set up tents and chairs for people to sit and whatever. And I was standing there, and this lady, I kid you not, this German lady comes stumbling towards me, okay? She was shwasted. 
And she had one of our rave cards. And I see her coming, and I'm like, this is going to be interesting. And she, like, steadies herself. It probably was this table. She steadies herself, and she goes, uh, what is this new life? What is this new life, church? And she's kind of like, sorry, yeah. And I was like, well, you know, we're a church, and we believe that we find the fullness of life in, in Christ, and, you know, we're open for anybody and everybody. And she goes, hmm. And this, I found her purpose. She goes, so what do you think about LGBTQ? What she was doing is she was coming in to argue, right? She knew what I thought. She knew, hey, this is a church. More than likely, they have a traditional view of sexuality and human flourishing, which we do. And so what I could have done is I could have gotten into a debate on sexuality and human flourishing, what all those things look like. But instead, I said, I can see that you have a heart for mercy. I can see that you have a heart for justice. And we do too. We believe that God's called us to love the least of these, that God's called us to love hurting people. Life is complicated and life is difficult. Some of the ways that we do that is we have something called the Arkansas Dream Center. We go out and we serve kids who are underprivileged and kids who are hurting. Um, and I started engaging with her about a conversation of justice. Did, did she come into our church? She didn't, you know? But she had a positive encounter with a Christian. And so our goal, y'all, is not to get into arguments where we know there's no winning. We're not gonna, what we need to do in conversation is we need to enter in and find common ground with people. This is our goal. Our goal is relationship, right? We, we could be right, y'all. We could stand on our rights. We could stand on this. Is, we could be those people who are like, the Bible says this, and if you disagree, well, you can go to hell. You know, it's like, I mean that literally. I'm not trying to be, you know, literally, that we could do that. But, but I, I think what's better is to enter into relationship w- with people that we want to influence and people that we want to win for Christ, especially when they're far from God. You know, listen, my goal is not to raise up a bunch of street preachers or social media preachers or whatever. My goal is to raise up a church of people who are willing to share their life with people who are lost around them. And not from a position of superiority because it's by grace we were saved so that no man can boast. But that we would enter into loving relationship with people. Notice two things. It says he looked carefully. Everyone say carefully at their objects of worship. We're going to break that down here in a little bit. He was paying close attention. He was more than curious. He was intentional, right? We can't just be curious about our culture. We've got to be intentional to understand. And while he was deeply troubled, he started with grace and kindness, and he looked to affirm the good. If you go read Romans chapter 1, the tone of Acts 17 and Romans chapter 1 are so different that a lot of scholars would say it was written by a different person. Here's what I believe. I believe Paul wrote both, but I believe that Paul understood that different situations called for different presentations of the gospel. It's the same gospel, but it's a nuanced approach to explaining it. You know, here's the deal. Like, being intentional, being gracious, being thoughtful, it takes work, it takes prayer, it takes study, it takes thoughtfulness, and it also takes listening and yielding to the Holy Spirit. Listening and yielding to the Holy Spirit. We have to be careful, you know, not to, to force feed somebody something that they're not ready to hear. Again, I'm talking about in relationships. Look at this. In Romans, Paul's addressing 
people who were already Christians about the fallenness of the culture and the need for the gospel. Here in Acts, Paul's building a bridge to the fallen culture so that he could present the gospel of Jesus to them. Do you see the difference? Often we bring rebuke to people who need to hear about grace. Often we're pushing people away when what we need to do is build a bridge. Or we have to talk to different people differently, right? Now, there's nuance in this. I think that we probably don't rebuke each other enough, if I can be honest, within the church. If you go through and you look at biblical discipline, it's very clear, you know, when there are certain issues, they're supposed to be rebuked. But in order to rebuke, there has to be a strong relationship. You don't talk to lost people like you talk to brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, because the stronger the relationship with a person, the more directly you're able to communicate. This is the, make, the mistake that so many street evangelists make. They're yelling at people they don't know about things they don't care about, so therefore that person doesn't care what they have to say. They're ineffective. We have to earn the right to be heard. How do we do this? Through affirmations. So how can we uh, affirm in our context, in our cultural moment? Affirm the desire for human rights. This is a Christian idea. We're going to talk about how you can do this and contextualize here in a minute. Affirm the desire for justice. God loves justice. Affirm, probably more so, the desire for mercy. Because the truth is, we don't really want justice, right? If we all got what we deserved, what we really want is mercy. We just call it justice. Affirm the desire for, for love. Yo, these are all good things. Each one of them, love and justice and mercy and the desire for human dignity, find their origin and fulfillment in God. But if we don't affirm the good, people will never hear the, the critique. Keller said this. He said, it's not enough to simply love our city. We've got to learn our city. It's not enough to simply love our city. We've got to learn our city. You know, listening and learning is loving. Listening and learning is loving. It, it's like with a spouse. Husbands, if you just love your spouse the way you like to be loved, and you don't listen and you don't learn her, how's that going to go for you? Fellas, how's that going? Not great. It's one thing to tell Callie I love her. It's another thing for me to show her by understanding how she needs to be loved. If we want to reach our culture, we have to learn our culture so that we can properly love our culture. Does that make sense? So number one, he affirms. Then number two, he critiques the idols of his culture. Verse 23, the second half. He says, so I can see that you're religious in every way. You even have an idol to an unknown God but you were ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Okay, so we talked about it earlier. What are the idols of our culture? How can we offer an alternative vision of life and flourishing to our friends, our coworkers, and our family members? You know, the Athenians were looking for meaning through worship beyond themselves, but they were worshiping things made by human hands. So the critique Paul offers is that ultimate meaning is not found in created things, but is found in the one who created all things. Our culture does the same thing. We, we worship created things. 
Once there's the affirmation, that'll lead us to a place where we can make critiques and offer an alternative view. Okay, so it's important to note that you have to approach it differently when Paul is in this setting, he's in a teaching and a debate setting, right? Not many of us find ourselves in that place, right? Most of us find ourselves in a relational setting. And so another mistake we can make is we can enter a relationship like we're these grand orators, right? And like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read to you my prepared speech and I'm gonna affirm you, I'm gonna critique you, I'm gonna build up the view of the gospel and I'm gonna lead you to Christ and you'll fall prostrate, prostrate before him. That's his first service, too. Uh, prostrate in humility before God, right? That's what we think is going to happen. But often the person is sitting there and thinking, I can't wait for them to be done, right? And I'm never going to hang out with this person again. It's different within a relational setting. But it requires the same elements, okay? That's what I'm going to look at. We're going to look at the elements. So let's get really practical here. It requires a lot of patience and grace to earn the place to offer critiques into people's lives and belief systems, okay? Let's get practical. So how do we do this? How do we offer critique? First, we have to listen. We have to listen to what they're saying, what they believe, and what's the larger cultural belief behind that belief. Does that make sense? What's the larger cultural belief behind that? So then, once we recognize what those belief systems are, we're going to talk about this in, in depth here in a second, we have to understand where they are and how they got there so then we can examine the ideas. Y'all, the largest area that we can critique our culture, the ultimate idol of our culture, I believe, is self. Right? It's self-worship. It, it, it's finding truth, and it's finding all things within ourselves. Uh, we, we all like to quote from Hamlet, whether we recognize it or not, to thine own self be true. Do you know who said that? The villain. <laughs> it wasn't the hero of the story. The villain said, to thine own self be true. We also quote things like the heart wants what it wants. Has anybody ever heard that or said that before? Do you know what the origin of that is? Woody Allen, who was married, was sleeping with his 15-year-old stepdaughter. And when asked by an interviewer, why did he do it? He said, I don't know. The heart wants what it wants. But this has gotten lost in our culture. And what we've started to see is finding truth within ourselves, self-actualization, right? actually does not bring us freedom. It brings us slavery. The book of Galatians says that we're actually free to not do whatever we want. We don't find freedom when we do whatever we want. We find freedom when we're able not to follow the impulses of our flesh, right? Carl Truman breaks it down this way. This is a long quote, but I think this is so helpful. It's a book called Strange New World. If you're interested in this, read this book. It's phenomenal. He says, modern man, however, seeks to be true to himself rather than conform thoughts, feelings, and actions to objective reality, man's inner life itself becomes the source of truth. The modern self finds himself in the midst of what Robert Bila has described as a culture of expressive individualism. This is our culture today, where each of us seeks to give expression to our individual inner lives rather than seeking 
rather than seeing ourselves as embedded in communities and bound by the natural and supernatural laws. Does that make sense? So what we're saying is the highest truth is found within, not from outside of us. Authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truths becomes the norm. This modern self then is not accountable to theologians who preach on how to conform oneself to God, but to therapists who counsel on how to be true to one's self. Yo, I love therapy. It's phenomenal. I've been through a lot of it. It helped me. But the goal of good therapy, especially Christian therapy, is to point you back to God. But what's happening within our world and within our culture is therapy is saying be true to yourself and that is where you'll find freedom. Here's the issue with that. Here's the issue. Has anybody had shifting visions of truth throughout your life? Right? You believe something to be true in middle school and then you get in high school and you're like, well, that was dumb. Right? And then as you get older and older, you start looking back and realizing, man, I don't know as much as I thought I did. That's a bad place to store up truth and to find authority. I believe fundamentally we as human beings need a truth that transcends us and that teaches us how to be human. I believe the best place we can do that is in our creator God. Now, again, what we have to understand is our world is not going to start there. and They're not going to be like, yeah, I too believe in creator God. Let's talk about how I can actually find my true self within that. no. We're going to have to be intentional to affirm, to understand what people believe, and then ask the question. This is a really helpful question. How's that really working for you? How is that really working for you? And you may get a moment where they say, you know what, I have no peace, and I'm miserable, and I just feel like I'm on skates. And then you can tell your testimony and say there may well be another day, another way. So step one, we listen. Step two, we understand. Step three, we intentionally engage and ask people to critically consider what they believe and why. Y'all, here's what I've found. So many of us simply mirror back to the culture what the culture tells us is true without critically thinking about it. And what we have to do is what the Bible says is to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And one of the most effective ways we can evangelize is to go through that process with somebody else. But in order to do that, we have to do that ourselves. Amen? So that's the practical. Here's the principle behind it. Live curiously, not defensively. We have to live curiously, not defensively. So often, the reason we're offended is because we feel insecure, right? Somebody's threatening our beliefs. We don't know how to back them up, and so we become angry, right? Here's what I want to challenge you to do. When that stuff happens, don't get defensive. Don't get angry. Get curious. And say, you know what? That challenged me. I'm going to read about that. I'm going to try to learn about that. I'm going to try to understand that, y'all. If you do that, life is a blast, right? Life can be a blast. I'm going to paraphrase uh, Charles Spurgeon. He said basically this. The truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You have to let it loose, and it will defend itself. If we believe that God is who God says he is, he can defend himself, right? He doesn't need us to get offended. He doesn't need us to get angry. He needs us to be committed for us to learn, understand, and let that loose. Amen? And when we do that, 
We're going to do what Paul did. He presents the gospel in a way that makes sense to his culture. What he does is he actually goes through and he quotes some playwrights and he quotes some philosophers. You know, when presenting an alternative vision of truth, what we would call evangelism, it's important to do something called contextualization. So everybody say contextualization. This is a great word, okay? This is going to help you. This is where we take something in our culture that makes sense and we explain how its fullness is found in Christ. Okay, so there's two different types of contextualization. Some called soft contextualization and hard contextualization. So soft contextualization is what the church is engaged in for like the past 20 years, basically. Not every church, but lots. It's where we're like, Stranger Things is cool. And so we're going to make a graphic that looks like Stranger Things. And that's how we're going to be relevant to our world, right? That's okay. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's better is when you can take something like Stranger Things and say, hey, I, I, I want to dig into this, and let's look at the deeper truth behind it, the thing that resonates and the reason you like it, right? If you're familiar with the, with the show, if you're not, basically what it is is there's like the normal world we see, and there's something in the show called the Upside Down, right? And in the Upside Down, there's these things called Demogorgons and this whole like crazy dark world, right? And so basically what happens is these kids become aware of this alternative world, right? And they enter in and they start doing battle with this alternative world. And it's a classic good versus evil story. But what's it really highlighting? It's highlighting that the natural world is not all there is. And there's something within us as humans that responds to that and knows deeply within us that there are things that we cannot explain from a purely natural perspective, Right? There is something else. You know, even if you get into science, there are dimensions. Scientists would say there's upwards of six or plus dimensions, things that we can perceive, that we can feel, but that we can't see, but that absolutely has an effect on our world. What would we call that? We would call that the spiritual dimension, okay? Now, this is a way that you can, it's called hard contextualization, but you can truly contextualize something that's happening in the culture to help people become hungry for something deeper, right? Okay, so there's something called the monomyth. Everybody say monomyth. So what the monomyth is a story, what the monomyth is, it's a story that's been told over and over and over and over again all throughout history, right? The Lion King and Star Wars are basically the same story as Homer's Iliad, right? There's a hero, and he has to go to some far-off place so that he can develop and learn things, and he comes back, and he overthrows the great evil, and he brings peace to the world, right? Brings peace to the galaxy. What is that? It's the story of Christ, right? He comes into a strange foreign world. He engages with it. He's the chosen son, right? And he comes through and he destroys the dragon, beats sin and death on its own home turf, and he brings victory to all the people, and there's peace in the earth, right? It's a story. It's the monomyth. So this is a way that we can contextualize as we engage with people. Now, listen, we don't want to become the, the people like, <laughs> you don't want to go to a movie with that guy because he's going to be like, yeah, you see, Jesus was in that movie. I don't know if you saw it, but Jesus was there, right? You don't want to become those types of people. Like, people run from those types of people. But what you want to do is to think critically about the things that you're seeing in the world, and, y'all, it becomes a lot more fun to engage with it, right? And then, when the moment presents itself, we can present the gospel to people in hopes that they might believe and they might come to be saved by Jesus. Amen? Yo, you can contextualize through worldview, not just story. So much of what our current world 
uh, holds dear are actually Christian values that over time have just lost their origin, right? The idea of women's rights. This is a Christian idea, right? The first person to see the risen Christ was a woman. Women couldn't even testify in Greek courts, right? That's one of the proof texts for the validity of Scripture. The idea of dignity of all life. That's a Christian idea. Christians started orphanages, started taking in people that people didn't want. In Rome, if you didn't want a baby, just leave it outside. It's called giving it over to exposure. This was common practice. Things to us as modern people that would just be unthinkable. It's a Christian idea. The idea that the world progresses and moves forward as it goes on. Progressivism is a Christian idea, right? But what we have to do is we have to draw it back to the source of the idea. That is contextualization. Here's the truth. Our world longs for the kingdom. Think about it. Our world longs for the kingdom of God. They just don't want the king. They long for the kingdom, but they don't want to come under the lordship of Jesus. This is the work of contextualization. This is the work of explaining things so that our friends and neighbors can see what they truly long for is a relationship with Jesus. Paul deeply understands the beliefs of his culture. He's quoting a, a Cretan philosopher and a Stoic philosopher. You know, this would be the same as quoting Freud, right? Freud said, out, out of your vulnerabilities will come strength. How do we contextualize that? My grace is sufficient for you, right? My power is made perfect in weakness. That's what the Bible says. So we can take these things. Joel, God's truth is written all throughout the fabric of our world. And what's so fun as a Christian is we get to find these bits of truth that people grab onto and people say and explain, hey, it, that, that thing, it finds its fullness and it finds its origin in the person of Jesus. Um, last one, and then we're, we're going to get to the end. Um, I got one more point after this, but I don't want to give false expectations. Uh, Pastor Rick always says that he had a friend, I think his name was Rocky, and he's like, Rocky would call me like once a month and say, Ricky, <laughs> don't call him Ricky. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Rick say, he'd call me and say, Ricky, you'd make a good Christian. That was it. That's all the guy said, right? He'd be like, you'd make a good Christian. And all, I used to hear them like, what a weird thing to say to somebody. But I was thinking about it in this message. What's he doing? He's affirming him. He's basically saying, dude, I, Rick, I think you're awesome. He, there's also a subtle critique in there, which is you're not as awesome as you could be. Right? And there's a gospel presentation that in Christ, you could be more than you ever are right now. Right? Now, there's also a deep risk of rejection that he took on. Rick could say, dude, and he did. Like, quit saying that to me. Quit being weird. Last point. We have to, and Paul, we have to do what Paul did. He engaged in conversation, and he risked rejection from the culture. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered. Right? They rejected him. But others said, we want to hear more from you on the subject. Some believed, and many others didn't. Uh, there's a story I heard recently. I, I was with a group of pastors at the end of uh, August, and a guy, church, he, he planted a church in, in uh, Los Angeles about 10 years ago. And he was meeting somebody who was interested in his church at a bar, because it's L.A., and it's just different there, right? And uh, the guy didn't show up. And so he got a drink, and he was hanging out, and so people started coming over to his table, started meeting friends, and starts hitting it off with these guys. This guy's awesome. I can see how he quickly made friends. And so they're talking, and maybe 15 minutes into the conversation, 20 minutes into the conversation, they said, so what are you in L.A. to do? 
He goes, well, he goes, let's not talk about that. You know, think, this is going well. And they said, no, 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 come on, tell us what you do. And he said, no, I really don't, I don't think it's a good idea. Let, let's just, let's talk about what you do. And they said, no, come on, man. He said about four or five times, like they would not let him out of it. And finally they said, bro, this is LA, all right? Whatever you're here for, we're accepting. You can open up, come on. Come on with it. What are you here to do? What's your dream? He said, are you sure? They said, yes, out with it. He said, okay, I'm here to plant a church. I'm a pastor. He said the first person who'd come up to the table, picked up his drink, didn't say a word, and just walked off. He said the second person, tears welled up in her eyes. Good timing. I didn't see you there, but I did ask you to come up here. He said, tears welled up in her eyes. She picked up her drink, and she said, I thought you were a good person. She walked away. Y'all, the reality is, what he was living in in L.A. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this is our, increasingly our world now. We're moving into something what most people would call a post-Christian world, Right? This is when we, we can't just assume people's faith. We can't assume what people believe. And, and the reality is, is that when you talk to people about God, there, there's a chance that they reject you. But y'all, we have to be willing to endure those things. We have to be willing to endure the, that rejection because in that person rejecting Christ, y'all, they are missing out on walking in the fullness of peace and life and purpose here on earth, but also in the age to come, in the life to come. What I want you to think about is who are those people in your life that you've wanted to share the gospel with, but either you haven't known how to or you've been afraid of rejection? How could you get strategic in those relationships, not to become manipulative or where that person just becomes a project, but where you could lovingly and relationally pursue that person and share the hope and the light of Jesus with them. I I know we've done a lot of like intellectualizing of all this, but I I wanna break it down and make it really simple. How do you share your faith? Number one, learn about them. Take an interest in them. You can't affirm the good in somebody if you don't know them. Ask them questions, know their story, their hobbies, their passions. Number two, this is where the risk comes in. Number one is easy. It just takes intentionality. Number two is tough. Let them into your life. Talk about your life. Invite them into your home. Invite them to your table. Be in relationship with them. Share your strengths. Share your weaknesses. Share your vulnerabilities. So number one, learn about them. Number two, let them into your life. Number three, look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Ask the Holy Spirit to open up opportunities to talk to them, to discuss faith and invite them to church. You know, some people in, in our world, there's unchurched people, but in our world, there's more de-churched people, right? It's people who've um, had an encounter with Christ that either one was wrong, right? They had a, a bad picture of Christ painted for them, or two, They rejected because it it pushed in on an ideal or a value that they had. And we still have to pursue these people and go after these people. 
Look for opportunities. Just discuss faith. Invite them into your home. Listen, can I give you a challenge? I don't know if I want to say this, but I'm going to. I think, I think often we invite people to church before we invite them to sit at the table with us. And, and, and what I believe is in this world, we're going to have more influence. We're going to have more opportunity if we're willing to sit at the table with them and have conversation and relationship with them before we invite them into a Christian context. Y'all listen, this is going to sound weird and this may, be, it may, may throw you a little bit, but inviting a non-Christian into a place where people are shouting and raising their hands and like all this sort of thing uh, might not be the best first step for them. They might walk in and be like, I hate this. This is weird. I can't wait to leave, right? Maybe the best first place is just relationship with you, conversations with you. I'm working on some things right now where we can offer some spaces where you can get into more conversation. Maybe lead them to faith. That's the last one. Lead them to faith in Jesus. Y'all, it may take years, but eventually you get to share the gospel with them. And y'all, there is nothing more rewarding than leading someone to Christ. Oh man, I remember getting to baptize people, getting to walk with people. Y'all, there's nothing better than seeing the power of the Holy Spirit change someone's life. So, I've got a couple questions for you, two questions. What's God speaking to you? Is there anywhere where you've maybe gotten off in your approach? Maybe you've gotten bitter or angry or you've started with critique. Maybe you've just given up. Is there anywhere where you need to be more intentional relationally to attempt to share your faith with someone? We're, we're gonna go into a time of response and uh, the worship team's gonna come forward here in a second after I pray. And what I want you to do is to just take a moment and think about it. Is there anything the Holy Spirit's been drawn on you with? And if there is, go up here to the cross. There's some cards. Write that thing down and you can leave it at the cross. Y'all, there might be some stuff you need to write down and take it with you and pray through every day. Over in the corner, we're talking about evangelism. Is there somebody that you need to share your faith with? Go over, light a candle for them. Pray for them every week. Ask that God would show you opportunities. Back in the corners, we have communion. Y'all, that's a time to confess sin, to thank God for his covering and his grace. And then back in the back, we're gonna have uh, some pastors, some elders back there. If you need prayer, hey, if it's just prayer on, I really wanna share my faith with this person, will you pray for me? We pray that God opens up or maybe you're in a battle right now that nobody knows about. Y'all go share, they ain't gonna judge you. We all got our battles, right? Go talk to them, have them pray for you. I wanna pray over us, but I read this today in the common book of prayer. It's a prayer for mission. I just wanna pray this over you. So if we all could, hold your hands out right in front of you. Almighty and everlasting God, who alone works great marvels, send down upon us the life-giving spirit of your grace. Shower us with the continual dew of your blessing and ignite in us a zealous love for your gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us be your carriers of hope. God, your carriers of life. God, give us a zeal for your word and your gospel. We love you, Jesus. Lead us and guide us. In your name we pray. All God's people said. Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review. Things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, if you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at, at NLC Downtown Little Rock to follow along with the life of our church.